The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? The question is always asked, and the answer is still the same. I'm as good as I was last week, which means I'm great. Nice, nice. Anything new on the uh front of uh, JPWA, you got anything, or maybe even some uh, online virtual training, anything new in, in the world well, of that? Well, I, I tell you, I just did a Zoom call with uh, six hmm. six guys today, and uh, we stayed on about two hours, and we, it, it originally started out going to be a uh, promo class. We, we just got to talking about everything going on in the world today, and um, wondering how long it's going to be back. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's so many... Mixed messages out there, and people are, uh, I mean, understandably cautious. I, I, I understand that, too. And, and, man, some of the the companies uh, letting people go, it's, it's just kind of a uh, – the best description I heard was, was last week sometimes. Somebody said, this is this is the 500-year flood. And I thought, that's just pretty apropos. Uh, never had anything like this happen. So we were on our second year. Um, going five weeks into the year, and all of a sudden, we got shut down, and we're just waiting like everybody else as to when we can reopen or uh, do anything on, online. I've been doing some stuff online with Snake Pit Pro, and uh, uh, he, that's Sin Bodie, Jake Roberts, and D'Lo Brown School, and Sin had been the main uh, coach on there giving some stuff out and uh, offering some talks and suggestions and taking questions, reviewing matches, things like that. I've done a couple. Dave, uh, David Heath, Gangrel has done some. Uh, Ricardo Rodriguez, Pat Buck, and um, you know that. And all thanks to Sin, he was the one who initiated this deal. And uh, we, we, I've, I've gone on our website, Jay, or our uh, Facebook. Done a, face, a couple of Facebook lives um, for JPWA, and uh, it's just a weird time. Uh, today we did the Zoom call again with uh, 
uh, six people on the line, and we and we talked and and went over some stuff. And uh, what did we go over? Went over like why would you watch older matches? And uh, I, I told him the story. I'll tell you this real quick. Uh, Ron West was a guy who used to referee, and he was in a lot of the major offices in the late seventies and eighties. And um, Hell, even in the 90s, he was in somebody. He worked for Cole Brothers Circus later on. His son, Brent West, has a podcast. And uh, he was telling me, you know, he wanted to do a deal on Wahoo McDaniel. And Wahoo's career actually started sometime in the 60s. And he, he sent me a deal saying, you know, our analytics don't really go up when we discuss anything under 1975. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and I get it because there's nobody out there that cares and and uh, nobody out there that that could appreciate um, the archaic nature and the primitive uh, conditions those guys worked in. Um, so uh, I, I get it to a point, uh, but again, I, I watched the match last week. Might have been after this. Might have been after we talked because I was talking about this probably last week too, with uh, Primo Canero versus Jim Lundis with Max Bear as the referee. And I said I found one spot in that match, maybe one um, a, a two minute part of that match that I might uh, suggest somebody to take away and update it and make it yours. You know what's new will be or what's old will be new again, and. Uh, it's not for everybody to watch because you can't – if you're just tuned in and and uh, geared up on the way wrestling is today, you ain't going to like it. And uh, I understand that. But the fascinating part to me when I watch it is, is I'm a history I'm, – I'm a student of the game and I love the history of the business. And I, I look at the primitive conditions they had to work in especially compared to today for that day in that era, it was, it was great, you know, but that just goes to show you how time changes. But, you know, I'm always interested in, um, um, how hell you went from card tricks to making the last statue of Liberty disappear in magic. So it's the same thing. What we did, I want to see how the beginnings were, were classified as, as, as they were during that era and how the people reacted. And then, at the same time, you might just find a, a nugget of gold in there. And um, that's that's kind of what I've been doing during this zombie apocalypse, I guess, is looking at some older matches and uh, getting a feel for what those guys went through, not, not in the 60s and 70s or 80s. I'm talking about the 30s, 40s, and 50s, just because that, that really is the uh, foundation and the, the – uh, building blocks of what the business became. And again, I'm curious and I'm fascinated by the way they brought it all together to what it is today. And I'm, I, I, I'm not saying those days were better or worse. I, they were certainly different, but, uh, and their approach was different. Their presentation was different. It was a different product altogether, but um, you, you can look at it, to find something or you can look at it just to see out of curiosity and uh and I guess be wonderment be wonderment or bewilderment, either way you want to look at it, of what they had to go through in those days and, and how they approached it. They they all were 
they they weren't great matches by any stretch of the imagination. For back then, they were they were the standard. But now that you have uh, athletes like Shawn Michaels and uh, my guy Triple H or Ricochet or uh, Roman Reigns and, and those kind of people to to compare them to, of course, you know the, today's athletes are better athletes. Um, some of them better workers, but you know these guys took the approach that uh, they're going to go out and bust their butts no matter what and, and give it everything they've got to to be as convincing as they could be, I guess. So, that being said, <laughs> yeah, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> But that kind of leads into a whole different era in the 90s that obviously a lot of people are still into today, and that's kind of the topic I wanted to talk to you about today, was a very brief period you spent in the good old ECW Extreme Championship Wrestling. It wasn't that many appearances, but damn, I think everybody should kind of go back, watch it, and definitely remember. So what's kind of your first thought? When's the first time you actually saw ECW? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, The first time... uh, I'm not sure the very first time. I worked for Paul... Uh, golly, on and off during the 80s at various times. And uh, I first met Paul, or maybe it, was, maybe it was the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And it was not ECW at the time. Uh, or it might have been, been Eastern Championship Wrestling. But do you remember Roadblock? Yes. Okay. Well... Uh, again, I'm not sure if this was ECW or not. It, it might have been. But uh, Paul had booked me, uh, and I don't remember the circumstances for this either, except, um, I mean, I don't remember why why he booked me or how this came, the booking came about. But we it was a match uh, at Gleason's Gym. Now, is that in Brooklyn or Queens? Do you know? That is Queens, I believe, if I remember correctly. Okay. Have you ever been to Gleason's Gym? No, but uh, Johnny Rods once invited. Actually, is it Brooklyn? I know Johnny Rods once invited me to go there. Actually, it is Brooklyn. Yeah, of course. It might have been Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's over on um, the infamous Water Street in Brooklyn. (laughs) I don't remember what street it was, but it sure was infamous. You're right. But, but, you know, Gleason uh, had his boxers, you know, his guys who were loyal to him. And... um, uh, I remember wrestling uh, the Rochester, was his name, Rochester Roadblock or whatever, <laughs> big, huge guy. <laughs> and and Paul was going to manage me at ringside, and he did. And, um, you know, Roadblock was a huge guy, man, maybe 6'8", 6'9", something like that, who was really, really tall. He was bigger than 6'4", I remember that, I think. I think, I think. Yeah, I think My he was mem- like 6'10", or something. He, he was, was something. really big, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I was a midget, and I knew it. And I was uh, – uh, Paul wanted me to go over uh, and finish. Oh, I was going to hit him with the phone. That's what it was. Paul had the phone. I hit him with the phone, and he was going to go down and and get a quick one, two, three on him. Well, um, everything was cool in the back, and we go out there, and, and we do the straw man stuff, but he's not – <laughs> He's not working very good. And I thought, okay. We went about six minutes, though, and, and finally I said, to hell with this. Let's go for the finish. And I went down, put my hand behind my back. Paul fed me the phone, came up, and referee 
knew the spot and came through. We, I came back and hit roadblock with the phone. He goes down. Uh, I cover him, and the referee goes, one, and he kicks out. And I went, oh, shit. Okay. Well, we tried something else. Uh, I remember we went for it twice. <sighs> Paul did something to him. He was going to hold his foot. I guess this time I covered again, and it was one, two, and he kicked out. And I went, all right, to hell with this. And I um, got out of the ring, and, and we're going to go back back, and I think it was, yeah, it had to have been after the match. It might have been before the match. At some point in the match, I think it might have been before, I think, think of it, uh, Paul had cut a promo and thrown the mic down on the mat and broke the mic. And that was Mr. Gleason's mic, apparently, because the dressing rooms were upstairs, and we had to go upstairs. And um, let's see. uh well, I don't. It had to be, I had to go. I, I guess Paul and I walked up together, but uh, I either went to talk to Roblox, say thank you, or something. I, I wasn't going to ask him why about anything, but but as I did that, when it came back, Gleason was in Paul's face with uh, like four of his boxers backing him up, and Tony Atlas was there as well because <laughs> and maybe three or four. Uh, pretty tough-looking kids. You know, I say kids, they were about maybe 18 or 19, but already had full beards, a couple tats on them or whatever, man. They'd been around. And uh, Paul says, uh, they, one was stepping on Paul's foot, and he looked at me and says, Tom, would you kindly remove this gentleman from my foot? And I went, oh, Christ, here we go. And uh, Tony Atlas stood up, and they stared each other down. Then Tony grabbed this guy by his neck, started pushing him off, and Paul said, grab your bag. Grab my bag. He got his bag. We ain't dressed. I ain't. I hadn't, hadn't showered. We ain't gonna shower. We, and Paul says, "Come with me." Walk down the stairs, and as this is happening, all the boys are coming with us, and they form like a wall on each side. So, Paul and I run out into the snow, get in Paul's car, and we haul ass and take off. And I went, "Hmm." That could have been interesting there because we were certainly outnumbered. Paul and I were outnumbered, but the boys were on our side, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, not I guess, but but that was uh, <laughs> that was one of my first memories. And then when ECW was was hot and rolling, uh, I believe it was right after or during the end of our run with WWE, and uh, we made some appearances, surprise appearances at. Uh, ECW at uh, not not the arena was the first one, but a, but a spot show I think. And when I remember my first impression though, uh, when I walked in, um, it, it it was a good vibe. It was a it was a good feeling uh, to walk into, and uh, I could tell that we would fit in just all right here. Um, with the exception of, I'd known Ted Petty uh, for a little while, and they were doing the Public Enemy thing. And one of our first matches Jimmy and I had was against Public Enemy, and um, I wasn't real keen about going through a table. I just didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to get hurt. I already had a bad neck. Didn't want to get hurt anymore. And Jimmy was good with it. Jimmy wanted to go through the table, so I remember. First night, it might have been Grunge and I who were fighting off to the side, and then uh, Ted and Jimmy go up to to the stage, and uh, 
I think they both go through, through a table. But it was a good locker room. It was a good vibe. It was good. Uh, it was a, it was a good place for misfit toys to hang out at. And and even before that, uh, I knew we were misfit toys. And uh, I I just didn't. I I, I knew we weren't going to make. Uh, a whole lot of money, and I knew they were a tight knit group. And they, again, it, it was, it, they were all cool, but it was. Um, the, I think they had come up together, and they had pretty much banded together, started it together, and, and we were coming in from the outside. And it would have taken us a little while to, uh, uh, you know, to be that adoptive family member, I guess. But but I liked it. Uh, first time I went in, I, I had no, uh, I had no fear or trepidation. I just went in going, hmm, these are my kind of guys. Now, did you know Paul? I mean, we've probably yeah. talked about this before from Continental. Did you, you knew him probably from, I guess, late '80s from the Continental days. Correct. Right? Yeah, that's that was when I first met Paul, and and I could tell then, um, <laughs> Paul, uh, Paul was a pretty smart guy, and he was always has been. Did you like him off the bat? Did you have any thoughts? No, about I, yeah, no, I liked him right off the bat because I knew I knew um, who he was. I mean, it, it doesn't take long to figure out when you meet him. Oh, hello, Mister Pritchard. I'm a I'm a big fan. I've watched you. Oh, yeah, thank you very much, Paul. I'm a big fan of yours too. You know, I mean, <laughs> I get it. it uh, but it, it's it, and he was really. <sighs> Uh, Paul was a good guy. I, I got along with Paul. I had a, I, I never had any problem with Paul. Let me say it like that. He is a worker, though, for sure. He's mm. definitely working, yeah. That's my point. I mean, yes. I, I don't think it was malicious. I just think that's the way you operated, and that's okay. That's cool. I got it. So you mentioned first going to ECW, loving the locker room, loving the vibe. How is that locker room? Everyone says the craziest locker room. They're all nuts, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Is that true, true at all? Yes. <laughs> so I, I look. Uh, again, I didn't get in this to uh, uh, cure a world peace or, or or find out some scientific formula. You know, I got in this to be a wrestler. I got in this to be uh, in the business and 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 to to experience everything there is out there. And. Uh, Man, I, it was crazy. It was insane. It was, um, uh, but it, I mean, that was the times too. And and were they pushing it? To, was was ECW accurate? Hell yeah, very accurate. And uh, you know that that's, that's again, it, it wasn't like going to. Uh, it wasn't a stroll to the grocery store where you just picked up your items and left. You were going to, to Disneyland or, or whatever you want to call it with every ride available to take you up, take you down, take you around, spin you upside down, make you throw up if you want to. Uh, and, and a lot of crazy moving parts. And, and a lot of it was dangerous, but a lot of it was great because you had your rabid fans, you had your passionate fans who were loyal and dedicated to coming and supporting these guys. And they knew that they were um, – not your normal round pegs and square hole type guys. <laughs> they they if they wanted to go in a round hole they would. If they didn't they they would stop you. But 
they wanted to do uh, their thing their way and under their terms. And I think the fans felt that they were genuine in that uh, sentiment, and they were genuine. The fans were genuine when they backed them. And you could feel it. I mean, uh, I've been to places where you walked in, you had the electricity, you felt the buzz, you felt the energy in the air. Um, sometimes it was dangerous. Sometimes it was just good energy, good vibe. And that's what you felt, or that's what I felt. When I got to finally when I worked in ECW arena the first time, it was that that energy, it was that uh, buzz, and that was that was a cool feeling because uh, the people knew wrestling was a work, but they knew they were watching a spectacle when they saw ECW. They could see the scaffold matches, they could see Tommy Dreamer doing these crazy things, Sandman, Brian Lee, I think at that time, Sabu, Van Dam. Uh, you know, you have some guys who were outside the box and, um, you know, who had this this air of of craziness about them. And, and it was, um, you know, the outrageousness of it all. Uh, the guy with the straw hat and wore the, the Aloha shirts all the time. I mean, they were a fixture. And, and I grew up in that... Uh, atmosphere at times you know you used to see the same people in houston wrestling every week and some would wear you know a a special shirt each day each week and and one lady had a big paper mache hammer they called her big mama at ringside she worked with the heels and always they always throw her the same thing ecw arena you had that fan interaction you had that uh uh that fan attitude that that these are our guys, and, and we'll fight for them, and we'll be here for them, and want to show them support. And I think the boys felt the same way about the fans. Going back to December of 1995, one of your first matches, if not the first match, first match I could really find, you versus Tommy Dreamer one-on-one at the Body Slams Arena in Reading, PA. Do you even remember this match from December of 95? you versus Tommy Dreamer? He defeats you by DQ, oddly enough. That could have been because we had somebody run in, I would think. Right. Yeah. Uh I I don't really remember that, that match, but um but I'm sure it happened. I mean, obviously it did. Uh you know, I remember one of the first times that we did show up at an ECW show though, we ran in, uh, us and the Dudleys. And uh I really didn't know that's the first time I met Bubba and Devon. And Bubba was doing the stuttering gimmick back then. And I remember I didn't know who was a heel and who was a babyface. He just got in there, and we were supposed to just swing chairs at everybody. And and uh, I hit Bubba on the back, and he turned and looked at me, and in his stuttering voice, he says, we're on your side. It took that long to tell me in the ring. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, okay, I get it. So... um. <laughs> it was that kind of deal too. You'd work your gimmick everywhere you went, at least if you're having fun with it. And they were having fun with it, man. So uh, I don't remember the Tommy Dreamers match, but but I remember the Candido match very well. Oh yeah. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely yeah. get to that in one sec. What were your kind of thoughts of Dreamer just in general? I mean, different style, obviously, um, more of a brawler, not not really known as a technician. What were your kind of original thoughts of Tommy? Uh, well, what I've always liked about Tommy is his, 
genuine um, authenticity. And he loved the business. He was giving his heart and soul to it. And um, that's what it takes. And he did what it took to go out there and get over and be Tommy Dreamer. Um, I think that that was a great name to have. It was a great attitude that he brought with it. And um, that that's why he's, he was so over, because people believed in him. Uh, Tommy believed in himself, and he never lost sight of who Tommy Dreamer was. Tommy Dreamer was uh, uh, a fan who, who lived out his fantasy, and, and, and it became reality to him. And uh, everybody in that arena lived it with him. Every ECW fan lived it with him because he, he made you feel it. And I was, I was highly impressed with Tommy Dreamer. Definitely one of those guys that heart and soul of ECW really kind of got over by getting his ass kicked, really. I mean, by selling and getting his ass kicked, how he got over big time. Well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, he he was that guy who lived his dream. And um, he knew it wasn't going to be easy for a guy like him. He was a fan. He He believed in his heart that he would go out there and fight with all his heart and, and, and everything inside him. And and that was the story he told every time he went out and got his ass kicked. And that's how he got over. I think even Tommy will tell you he was not a technical wizard, never claimed to be. <laughs> so uh, his, his purpose and his um, uh, place in ECW was to be that, that fighter, to be that guy who no matter how bad you beat him down, he he's not going to stay down. He's going to keep climbing back up. And that was the story. That was the the um, atmosphere and environment that, that I found Tommy Dreamer to, pardon me, to inhabit, if you will, better than anybody else could at that time, especially for ECW, because you needed that guy. You had your ass kickers, but you needed somebody who could take a good ass kicking and keep coming back and never say die and show everybody that you can, Get back up, no matter how bad it is. That was a story I got. Now, the next week, basically, still, we're still in December of 95, December 9th. I guess it's one of the infamous four-hour-plus taping days of ECW because you actually end up working two matches. One of the ones was just the one you were talking about with you and Jimmy, obviously the Heavenly Bodies, against the public enemy. So do you remember having to work twice, basically, in a day there and them doing those long-ass tapings at the ECW arena? <laughs> no, honest to God, I don't. I don't remember working twice, but there, there, there's a few missing years in my life. Uh, <laughs> but no doubt we did. I mean, there was nothing unusual about that. So I mean, that that, you know, that, we we were used to that. We've done that before, so that was no big. Uh, that certainly wasn't something I'd, I'd write in my diary that night. That we, hey, guess what? We did two tape tapings today. We, right. We, we've done. We've done. <laughs> We've done that before. So who who was the second match with? So that first match against Public Enemy, the second match is an ultimate Jeopardy steel cage match. The Pitbulls, the Public Enemy, Tommy Dreamer, and Raven. Also throw uh, Steve Richards, the Eliminators in there, and then the Heavenly Bodies. So it's Mm. basically like a four-way ultimate Jeopardy steel cage match. Crazy uh, gimmick match from ECW. <laughs> well, let me look at that entry in my diary here. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't doubt it. But I, again, I think that that's just um, 
testimony to how comfortable I think I think Jimmy was comfortable in there too because uh, just because <laughs> it was a loony bin and we walked in and we said, ha, we're home. Uh, I, I think that's the, just because we were that comfortable with those guys, you go out and they were pros, they knew what to do. Um, and, and I sure didn't, I didn't get hurt there. It didn't, there were no accidents. There were things that, uh, everybody was being cool. Everybody was accommodating and, and worked and it was great actually. So the heavenly bodies, Great technician, great Southern-style tag team, but great tag team overall in general. Working with the public enemy, who are just basically brawlers, perfect for ECW, perfect for the Northeast. How were you guys able to mesh well with them? I mean, did you enjoy working them? You don't mind that style? Or you guys really are chameleons? You guys can just wrestle anybody? No, yeah, I think we are. I think, but, but I think, you know, that just, yeah, I think it comes with, knowing how to work with anybody. And, and, uh, I think it was cool with the uh, public enemy too. They, they, we worked their style. We were in their house and, and, uh, I don't think we had any problem with that because there was a little bit of Southern, Southern wrestling right there for you. Cage match, no disqualification, blood, guts, gory, all that stuff. And, And again, it was something that we were used to and it was nothing that shocked us or, appalled us or upset us i think we we knew what we were um getting into when we got there and and you know i had no reason not to follow what paul wanted us to do and um there were no problems so i think the fact that public enemy could work um and we still did their their style but they they could work uh never had any problem with them And, and the guys you just mentioned um with Gary Wolf and uh, Anthony oh, Durante, Anthony, yeah, yeah, they were they were two good guys too who could work. So I mean, uh, there were there were never any problems or awkwardness. I think we we just went out there and uh, followed. As far as the crowd and stuff, because it's weird that they're smart fans. They were known as being good fans and stuff. But they had their favorites and guys that they liked, and it felt like a lot of southern style guys, a lot of guys from other places didn't get over well there. What did you think about your kind of general reception from these quote unquote smart fans? Uh, you know, I I think um gosh, I I think because we, we uh, and I could be wrong, but this is my perception. But because we hung with their teams and we didn't necessarily, we didn't make a drastic change when we went there. We again, it was their house. It was, it was their style. Uh, it was ECW, and and I don't think it was that much difference. You know, with the exception of maybe the barbed wire and 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 things like that. Uh, I I don't know that there was that big of a difference between what we did. Yeah, and he, um, Austin, I th- Austin was there a couple times when we were there, I think, right? You mm-hmm. have the cards? Yeah, okay. So I remember seeing Steve there, too. Um, you know, so, and Steve wasn't doing a lot of the hardcore stuff, but he was doing authenticity, you know, mocking uh, uh, WCW and stuff like that. So, and the Hulkster, yep. And the Hulkster, yeah, that, you know, that, that was really what, but got him noticed um, with Vince up there, and Jr. showed him this, and, and of course Bruce had been watching it for a while, and and Paulie had been in a clandestine 
relationship, I guess. According to everybody, it wasn't clandestine to too many people, I don't think. But um, everybody was aware. And when we went up there, uh, I, I think the fans – accepted us for the most part. You know, it wasn't like New York, man. Again, that the 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 guys on the front row let you know when they hated you. And the Northeastern guys, they did hate the Southern guys. And Well, I don't know what Southern guys. They love Shawn Michaels. Uh, but we we certainly had that go-home heat in, uh, in New York, get-out-of-the-ring heat. Not boo, we love the boo-you heat. No, it's like, ah, oh, you guys really suck. Go away. But ECW is a little more accepting, I think. I don't know. Uh, Michaels is pretty hated as a babyface in uh, MSG. <laughs> oh, is he? Uh, oh, I thought my he was God. Over. Okay. Well, in we the, weren't. In the we 90s? Oof, yeah. Hated. Hated. Well, we weren't babyfaces either. They were booing right, us. That's right. what I'm saying. They weren't booing, hey, we love to boo you. It was like, oh, boo, get on. Man. How long you guys taking in this match? So it was just that. But, but. Again, we brought that on ourselves. I brought it on. How about that? I'll take all the heat for the team. I brought it on because they can tell when you're digging it, and they can tell if you're good, and um, they they make the judgment call, as well they should. They're they're the ones who do make the judgment call. That's why I think it should be fan voting on the the, uh, Hall of Fame, which which we see a lot more people in there, I think. You know, a lot more deserving people in there, too. But, yes, so that that night, and that Steve Austin actually does get a title shot. Uh, with It's a triple threat, Sandman, Mikey Whipwreck, and Steve Austin. Steve Austin eliminates Whipwreck, and then Sandman ends up eliminating Steve Austin. But then the match after that, Public Enemy defeat you guys. And then after that is the ultimate Jeopardy steel cage match with the Pitbulls beating, obviously, all of you guys as well. But you guys get the main event over the ECW world title match, which is pretty cool. Huh. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then I guess it just goes to show you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The ECW title or world title or whatever it was probably uh, didn't mean as much as um, who did we work with? The, so, so it was Public Enemy in the first match, and then the Ultimate Jeopardy. Oh. Pit, Pitbulls, Raven, and, and Dreamer, the Eliminators, and then you guys. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that that probably been because they might have thought it'd be more action than tag, but who knows. I don't think we got paid extra for that, but but I think I'll ask Paul about that next. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, I'm sorry. It's actually Ultimate Jeopardy Steel Cage Match five on five. So it's the Pitbulls, the Public Enemy, and Tommy Dreamer. They defeat you, Stevie Richards, uh, Jimmy Del Rey, the Eliminators, and Raven. So I'm sorry, I screwed that up. It's a five on five, not a, oh, not a I got you. match. Yeah. So it's okay. a, just a big, big almost. Schmoz. Uh, yeah, Schmoz. Almost like war games esque, but not really. Kind of just multi man cage match. Yeah, so we probably ended it. So Paul didn't want to put the, you know, he thought there he probably figured there'd be more action, you know, mm-hmm. triple the yeah. action. Yeah. Yep. Yep. With the big uh, cage matches and all the baby faces going over the heels. How how sure. could that go wrong? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> put the baby faces <laughs> over five of your heels. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? So basically, you mentioned br- brother Brucey, Jim Ross. Did you guys have any idea that there was a relationship with the WWF and ECW at, at all? I mean, a lot of people say they had no idea, but did you know that there was a relationship there? Well, I had an idea, yes. Mm. <laughs> I did because we, well, I mean, uh, I, I remember, oh, maybe a year before, 
everybody was coming on, everybody kind of figured out that, that they were in cahoots, if you will. Uh, Bruce, Paul, and I went to go see Jacob's Ladder. You ever seen that movie? Nope. Oh, okay. Jacob's Ladder. Well, and, and we want, and we're watching it, and and the, and we're sitting there just making making small talk. Then the movie starts, and it's a weird movie. It's it's a different kind of movie, but but it, it starts and and it, and the first ten minutes, especially, are a little bit or head scratching. And Bruce and, and Paul are looking at each other. And said, "I don't get it." And I said, "Hang on, I know exactly what this is. It was it was it was hallucinogenic." And they were showing him all these trips, and at the end of the movie, they explained how it happened. So uh, it's kind of like 2001: Space Odyssey again. You yeah, know, you you know. don't don't try to figure it out. Just let it play out, and don't they they'll either want you to know, or or they'll explain it, and you won't get it, or you'll explain it, and you will get it. And uh, so, yeah, about a year before, um, I had had uh, gone to a movie, and I think we. Uh, when Bruce, when when Paul would come near uh, Connecticut, or or we would go near New York, uh, uh, we have an occasional bite to eat. But but there was no talk about it. It just you didn't take a genius to figure out, <laughs> you know. Well, anyway, but I, but I I saw it in a different light, and and I never said anything to anybody either. But it, you know, a lot of things were left for me to figure out or for me or, or you know if you wanted to figure it out great if you don't no big deal but yeah i had an idea about a year before um and they, they might have been in business long before that too and why wouldn't they it would just it, it would make more sense to have him you know pissing in the tent instead of pissing outside you know what i mean he can get on and talk mm-hmm. about wwe however you want but um he he know the line that, that shouldn't be crossed so he would step right up to it but uh, you know that that's as far as he would go. So yeah, it's crazy that a lot of those "quote unquote" smart fans didn't realize it or like they were shocked by it. I thought, even as a young fan, I thought it was like kind of obvious he would try to like bury Bischoff and WCW. See, I mean, he would bury McMahon, but not really. I mean, it just right. and then obviously, obviously, then they started working together in about '97 or so. But it always seemed like they were trying to bury WCW. Well, yeah, because it, it it makes no sense. But Vince would want you to bury him, so everybody would think just the opposite. But but it really made it, it would make no sense because Vince could burn you down in a heartbeat, especially that close. You know, I mean, you're working, you're you're one state over. Yeah, there, there's yeah. no sense. It, it doesn't it doesn't behoove anybody to uh, to be arguing. Why not get talent from ECW? Why not help you out here if you help us out when we need help? You know, it, it's it's just I, I learned that too late in my career too. How how you scratch my back, I scratch your back. It was kind of like, nah, let me do it myself. You know, and it doesn't work that way. And I think Paul was smart enough, especially to know, uh, you know, he's in New York. Come on, guys, we're you're in Connecticut. Look, I tell you what, you know, and after catching their TV, because they had local TV, too, that was bleeding over, and, and it was like, it was a new style. It was different than WWE, and, and, and you know, Bruce and JR kept up with stuff like that and had their finger on the pulse of, of what was going on. Plus, Howard would watch it, too. Speaking of Howard, uh, what a great guy. <laughs> we just lost him, too. And, and uh, but, but you had those people who were really – 
passionate. And Howard was passionate, Bruce was passionate, JR was passionate. Vince is certainly passionate, but he, he can't watch everything all the time because he doesn't want to. <laughs> and uh, he relies on people he trusts to, to give him the information he needs. And um, Howard Finkel is certainly one of those guys. So it's a different time, different place, different era. We always, I always say that, but, but that's why it's – that's why I think we're in the state we're in today. It is interesting because obviously Brother Brucey was friends with Paul, and I think, like you said, Jr. obviously knew Heyman very well, kind of got him a, a really good start in NWA and WCW, um, and you know, kind of just helped him out, maybe mentored him along the way there. But it's just interesting that a lot of people kind of didn't see that coming, but Paul was getting a paycheck from them for a very, very long time, and still is. So maybe he he is one of the smartest guys. Maybe he is the genius that all the people refer to him as. Uh, I'll, I'll give him that. I'll, I'll give him that genius title. I mean, he, um, he he he's a genius because he has been there that long. You know, so is Michael mm-hmm. Hayes. So is Pat Patterson, you know. Mm-hmm. And I won't give a nod to anybody else, but, but there's a few others there who, who are genius in the fact that they've known when to – um, when when to when to say when and when to ring the buzzer? You know what I mean? It's like you you it's a it's a relationship business, and if you can't get along and if they don't want you there, you're not going to be there. And um, uh, Paul was smart enough to know that he was smart enough when to be brash and how to be brash and how to be confident and how to have ideas always in his back pocket. He was never empty. <laughs> I mean, he he was never had a lack for ideas or suggestions and um and he and he has a handle on things he he is talented he really is and he has uh chutzpah and, and moxie and and uh you know vince likes that vince vince enjoys people who aren't afraid to take chances uh but know their calculated risk and uh knows when to step back and if he's ever stepped over the line obviously they've amended their ways Mm -hmm. what do you think about his booking style a lot of people say like genius level stuff as far as getting the land of misfit toys like you mentioned getting those guys that maybe weren't accepted or maybe not over other places but able to take them mold them maybe even show them who they are personally and expand on their own selves you know turn it up 10 10 degrees or however you want to say turn it up to 100 what do you think about him and his booking style? Well, I like to quote that great or good players want to be coached, but great players want to be told the truth. Paul knew how to tell the truth to where they would understand it, understand the truth they needed to know, understand the truth they needed to believe. Um, not saying that it was all pure white driven snow truth, but it doesn't matter because he was a motivator, he was a booker, he was a coach. Uh, he knew what nerve to touch, and and sometimes he uh, he would misjudge. But more times than not, Paul knew how to talk to his troops and knew how to get um, exactly what you said to to get them to know themselves, to inspire, empower, drive home, whatever you want to call it. Um, he 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 knew how to do it then, and I believe he knows how to do it now. He's just under a different constraint now than he was back then. Uh, he, he'll go as far as he can these days, I have no doubt. 
I haven't witnessed it. I can't say for sure, but I really have no doubt that that, that he still has the same approach. And and I think you really need that with um with with, with the roster he has now, and you needed it certainly with the roster he had then because he knew. This is my speculation that Paul knew what he had on his hands, and um. <laughs> Here's another great analogy. It's like frying an egg. You know how long you need to keep it on one side before you flip it or you put the pan on it for um, eggs over easy mm-hmm. or, or poached eggs, whatever you want to call it, or you, do you need to scramble it real hard? How do you react? How do you get your eggs to react? And I know that's a little obscure reference there, but I think that's what ECW was. If you have a carton of eggs in there, man, you know which ones to let simmer. You know which ones to cook just right. You know which ones to scramble up. And um, uh, if you needed to fire somebody up, man, he had the speech for you. And I, I truly believe that about Paul. He just uh, – he, he could be full of shit, no doubt, but everybody's full of shit now and then. And especially in this business, I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> but but when you're full of shit and people know it, you have to, you have to still motivate and uh, steer people where you want them to go. And I think that the guys that were in that locker room were waiting for someone to give them a direction or give them some hope or just give them a road road sign or a road map to follow. And that's what Paul did. He would give you, even if they would never come true, even if what he laid out for you, like, oh, we got these great plans for you, kids. You're going to do the job for Dreamer tonight, but we're going to come back. And you're going to come back in the Sandman. And then you're going to have this big smog. Everybody's going to hit the ring. He's going to hit you with something. going to beat you again. And then the next week, we're going to have the Destroyers in there. And he's going to, just like you're on the verge of winning, but, man, he's going to shriek. And, and wait a minute. When am I ever going to win? Oh, that's, that's six weeks down the line. But don't worry. It's coming. You know? It may never come, but the fact is you need to talk with that belief, and it's not what you say to him, but it's how you make him feel. And that, and that was true with Paul. Uh, as long as he made you feel you could walk through hell with gasoline underwear on, man, by God, you're willing to do it. And that, that's, that's a lost art these days. And uh, I think Paul tries to do a variation of that in WWE today, and I think he does a great job when he gets a chance to, you know, to – uh, pull out all the stops and, and follow his vision. So, what do you think about everyone? Not everyone, but a lot of people saying they're tricking the Kool Aid. Heyman is tricking them, not or not tricking them, but basically motivating them in a different way. But they're quote unquote drinking the Kool Aid. By all means, you're drinking the Kool Aid anywhere you go, and it's a matter of how does it taste to you. If you don't like the Kool Aid, you're not forced to sit there and drink it. He, he he wasn't Jim Jones. He wasn't the one who said, you got to line up and drink it, and you got to line up. They were willingly lining up. They were willingly, willingly there. Yes, yes, by all means, it's all Kool-Aid. And I believe great leaders have to do that. Um, I don't, you know, not everybody reacts to the truth the same way. And, and, and the truth really is only your truth as you see it. And that's why, especially in this business, uh, if you're going to run a company, um, I couldn't imagine the stress. But I've seen it on Cornette. I've seen it on Heyman. Uh, hell, Vince, you know, what would you – do you know how to become a billionaire uh, or a millionaire? You know how to become a millionaire, right? You start out as a billionaire, then you buy a wrestling company. 
And, that, you know, that, that's the easiest way. That's the easiest way to do it because it's all on you. And if you're putting up the money, uh, you're, you're getting the towns. Even if you weren't, you know, you're still the one bringing the show there and producing it. It's up to you to produce revenue. It's up to you to make the company work. And I couldn't imagine. I don't know how much money Ben's put in XFL, but all of a sudden cease operations and then go bankrupt? You know, yes, he's a billionaire, but that's how he stays a billionaire, I guess. I don't know. I've never had a billion dollars, so I couldn't tell you. But Paul was, was certainly handing out Kool-Aid, but, but he wasn't holding a gun to their head. He wasn't making people go. Uh, he, he did what he knew how to do. His dad was a lawyer. I don't know if it was in the genes or what it is, but Paul knew how uh, to do what he did. And he, and, and he did it pretty good for a few years, I think. And to this day, he's still, he's, again, I think Jim Cornette's a genius for whatever it's worth. But Jim is that mad scientist and, and can't hold his feelings in a lot of times. I think Paul does it better because he knows how to uh, speak that Northeast language and uh, has a connection. And, and nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, just, it's entertainment. It's wrestling. And Paul knows old school wrestling from the Northeast. He was raised on it. He got in places by, by calling up and pretending that he had met Vince McMahon downtown Manhattan. And, and don't you remember you told me to call your office and you have press tickets for me or press passes for me at the, at the garden? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I remember. What's your name? <laughs> what? Hmm. I mean, he would do stuff like that. So, um, he, he was, he was a smart guy from, from the beginning. And if he, if he doled out the Kool-Aid and, and sure, people are going to say that all the time because yeah, you, you do fall under a spell. If you believe in somebody, you know, Robert Fuller, in my opinion, was a great booker because he knew how to talk to people. Um, not always, uh, well, yeah, I guess. I guess Continental was was a place for lost souls too, in a way. But Robert knew how to how to empathize and sympathize at times, and so did Paul. And 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 you have to have people uh, who trust you and 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 look for you for guidance and be able to give them some kind of guidance. And uh, if that means drinking the Kool Aid, then you're drinking the Kool Aid. But it's a fact. Did you love that style as well? I mean, it is old school. It is somewhat like Memphis, uh, a little bit like Florida thrown in there, that ECW hardcore, quote-unquote, extreme style. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, it was it was really I, – I grew up on that, you know, in Texas. I grew up on that extreme style. I grew up on guys, you know, wild and crazy. But I think wrestling was wild and crazy back in the, the 60s and 70s a lot more. And Paul, remember those old days, you know, even in New York, it was wild and crazy in the 60s and 70s. And there was that, that spectacle. There was that atmosphere that was that, uh, you know, stardust was in the air type thing. And, and he created that. And of course, I, I, I still love that style where there's an air of mystery about the guys. How can this guy be so crazy? How can Sabu do what he does and still walk? How can the Sandman do what he does and still walk? You know, all those questions and all those things, it was like, we're not, a, we're not accountants. 
<laughs> and and they certainly weren't accountants. D'Lo Brown was an accountant though before he got into wrestling. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. yep. And, but we weren't. And and even D'Lo caught it, man. He 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 knew he he was made for this instead of that. And uh, yeah, I I love being on the fringes of society. I love that outlaw feel to the business, and not being a civilian walking down the street with my perfect haircut and a suit on that that wasn't how i was seeing the world not at all i i wanted to see it through the eyes of uh uh wild wacky professional wrestling <laughs> and it was great it, i wouldn't i wouldn't change a thing well i'd change a few things but i, I would certainly still still go through and uh go through the business so kind of circling back to jacob's ladder and you Bruce and Paul going to the movies. How does that even come about? Are you friends? Obviously, you and Bruce, I mean, brothers, but are you huh? friends with Paul or is Bruce friends with Paul kind of saying, oh, it's going yeah. to the movie? Like, how does that happen? You're, you're in town, he's in town? Yeah, well, I was living in Stanford at the time. So uh, Bruce says, hey, you want to go to the movie with me and Paul? Yeah, sure. <laughs> when we go out, so Saturday afternoon, I think it was right before a show probably that Paul was, uh, it might have been. I, I don't know if Paul had a show that night or not, quite honestly. But I just remember we met him in a, a theater in New York, small talk, and that was it. But, yeah, I'd known Paul from uh, Continental Days. And, uh, but Bruce was the one who invited me. So. Nice. Okay. I was just trying to, trying to kind of piece that together as I kind of sure. circled back to it. But also circling back, you mentioned the great Chris Candido before. So you, return, you leave basically from 95, you come back in 97 to ECW, um, Philadelphia. Actually, let me get this right because I want to make sure I get this the, the right venue on this one. So it was the arena. It, yeah. it was the ECW arena. Okay, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, ECW arena. You versus Candido. He gets the win. How do you get booked for that? Is it because they want to do the whole skip zip thing and and kind of ha- have him basically show like I hated that gimmick and you know you come in and kind of stir up the shit or how did that all come about well yeah it wasn't that detailed i think it was just still the same of exchanging talent with wwe and that night <laughs> they were going to put me against candido and and want to put him over which was certainly the plan for me anyway uh but chris picked me up i didn't fly in uh met chris I met Chris wherever I met him at. I don't remember now. Well, we got in the car and Bubba, where, Bubba Ray was driving. It was Bubba's uh, car, I think. I think. Anyway, and uh, again, I'd only seen Bubba. Gosh, that the the couple times we'd come in before, Jimmy and I, and now I'm there. Uh, and and he was he was kind of quiet, but uh, Chris called Paul on the way to the show, say, hey, I picked Tom up. We'll be there 45 minutes, whatever. So then Paul told him, said, okay, well, here's what I want for the, the finish. And I said, okay. Or he told Chris, Chris says, yeah, okay, hey. And he told me when he wants to finish. So, okay, yeah. He said, well, he wants me to go over. Said, of course. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense for me to go over. Um, so we came up with the power bomb. I asked him, how's that ring for bumping? He says, great. And uh, so we went up, we did that, and I think it was just a, uh, again, a, a, an exchange. But since we've been partners, I guess they made something about that. Um, uh, at the end, we, you know, like uh, there, were, there was a heat with Tammy, heat with Bruce or whatever, I guess it was, from on the inside with us. And everybody knew about Tammy, but, uh, oh, God, 
gosh, at the end of it, he makes a speech about Tammy and Bruce or something. So, and we shook hands and all that stuff. But but that was a fun match because again, Chris came from the same philosophy as if I'm going to throw a chair at you, I'm going to throw a chair at you. <laughs> you know, if it hurts, it hurts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know, we both went in with that, and it was it was it was kind of cool. And Chris was a hell of a worker. I mean, a great worker. That was the only time I ever worked with him, though. Such kind of an underrated worker. I feel like that was kind of the quote-unquote genius of Heyman, if you think about it. He was, you know, skipped from the body donnas, and look at him. Look, He's a great worker and a hell of a wrestler. Look what I let him do in ECW. You know what I mean? He let him be himself, basically, and be the great worker and wrestler, which is really kind of cool because if you think of Candido, like, oh, skip, and even you, like, oh, zip, oh, man. But then yeah. you see him in ECW, it's like, that's Chris Candido. That's the great wrestler. But, but see – that that was more par for the course back then. You had guys, more guys like Chris, um, who loved the business, and and that's why they were in ECW because they were allowed to love professional wrestling. They were allowed to go out and and do what they remembered seeing that got them excited about being in wrestling. And um, uh. Yeah, it was a genius of Paul, but it was a genius of any booker that can get the guys to go out and do that and and, and let loose and let the talent shine. And uh, Chris was talented. He 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 was he, he was one of those guys that that was uh, just a natural. And and when he came to WWE, uh, it's kind of like the same thing with us. You don't want to make waves. I didn't want to make waves. Um, I was, yeah, anyway, but, but he didn't either. And, uh, when he got to ECW, when he got back to ECW, because they had seen him before and they, and they knew what a great worker he was, that was the instant vibe. And that's why, uh, in that match, I think, again, they saw that, that we were giving him a match that we were both feeling. We didn't talk about our spots out there. We just, we did it out there and, and you couldn't do that with a lot of guys um, unless they had been around. And, and some guys can call matches in the, in, in, in the ring and some guys can't. But Chris just had a natural ability and a feel for it. And the ECW crowd knew it. And I think at the end, again, they appreciated the fact that, you know, everybody was smart there. You're right. Smart marks. But what are we going to do for a finish here? If, if I would have gone over on Chris Candido, no matter what arena it was, it would have stunk to join out. The right thing to do is to make Chris who Chris is, and especially a young Chris Candido. Chris was, God, still in his 20s then, and he was still great. And um, so that was that was the right thing to do, and I think the ECW crowd knew that and were expecting that. I think they just wanted to see what we were going to do from the bell to bell. And if we did anything different, I think it would have turned out different. But but I, I felt through the whole match that the people at least were, were giving us some respect. And that was always appreciated because, uh, <laughs> like I said, some people just don't give a shit. <laughs> they did. Yeah. Your last match in ECW is in about a few weeks later, in July of 97, you defeat Louis Spicoli in my hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey, over yes. at the, the legendary convention center. Do you yes. remember this match? I do. I do. I do. Good, good. I do. Well, let me tell you why I remember it, because um, I had known Spicoli uh, 
for a while too. I think he came to oh, was it Memphis or Memphis or Continental? I don't remember exactly now where I met him. No, yeah, Memphis or Colorado or Memphis or or Continental. Anyway, um, this the time I came for this match. Uh, what year was that? That is 1997. Okay, so 97. Uh, what month? That is July, so summer of 97. So I'm I'm close to I'm I'm 36. I'll be 37 in August of of 97. And um, I'm just I'm not digging being in the ring as much. And I've been training guys and. Uh, I was taking all the bumps when I'm training these guys. And these some of the guys were better than others. I think this is about the time the Funkin' Dojo was going on. And I just wasn't feeling it. But, again, Spicoli was a lot like Chris. But we just didn't mesh this night. And I slapped him in the ring. And he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to react. And I was hoping he was going to get on me. But he didn't. It just it did not mesh. It didn't gel. And uh, I remember coming back to Louis, And I think uh, Sabu had asked him, he said, did we try to do a – a WWE, a WWF at that time style match. I said, no, it just, it just didn't work. It didn't click. Uh, so I just remember we tried to do it, but I, I, I think that again, that was, that was on me because I wasn't feeling it. I don't think he was feeling it. And, uh, I really, I, I felt a short change him on that match too. We should have got into it. We just didn't, couldn't tell you why, but he, uh, he's a hell of a hand too. Hello. Underrated you're, worker. you're exactly right. I, I took him, um, i Burt Prentice ran TV in uh, Kansas City many, many years ago, and, and Louis showed up at the TV tapings and asked me if I would introduce him to Burt. So I did. He was supposed to be on the next TV taping in Kansas City, but they uh, they did one more, didn't invite him, and then the next one they closed down. So that never worked out. But but he was um, a hell of a hell of a hit. And uh, so, yeah, it's... It, it, it's a shame because he went down the, the the same side road a lot of us do. Mm-hmm. For sure. Did you wish, I know you said you were going to get older and obviously you're working for WWF as a trainer and stuff like that. Did you wish you worked more for ECW? Because, I mean, it's not a huge sample size of matches, but it sounds like you really enjoyed yourself there. No, I enjoyed myself, but I knew my time had come. I mean, there there's, there's a time when uh, – I, I can tell. Let me, see, let me speak for myself. Because Lawler, you know, still likes to work, and he's 71 years old. I, I don't, you know, Kevin Sullivan uh, used to talk about wanting to work until he's in his late 60s, like the Sheik used to do. And I thought, no, 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 no. That that's <laughs> not good. You know, Sheik would come in, and 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 he was in his 60s when he came to Houston. He he. Go out and gig, and 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 their match would go maybe five minutes, and just no, that's that's not what it was coming to and I wasn't enjoying it going out there as much because it it's it's just the bumps you know, the bumps hurt more than you used to and cornbread and iced teas took the place of pills and ninety proof. All that <laughs> stuff. You know, that that's the songs we listen to on the road and it's coming true now. And and it's like, you know, it, it's a young man's business and uh I, that's the way I felt. And even though I was thirty seven, I was still taking bumps and I was teaching and I was getting in that coach mode and I was more or less trying to 
critique the matches and, and give you my views on them than trying to go in there and show you, here's what I do, kid. It just, it, it wasn't um, feeling it. So, you know, even today, uh, if I do some appearances or, or do a seminar, they'll say, hey, would you like to work that night? Absolutely not. But I'll give them, I'll, I'll tell you this is what I'll do it for, but I, I can't do anything anymore. And that's kind of how I was feeling then. It was it was time for the new generation to step up and, and do their thing because it was uh, my neck was killing me, my back was killing me, and I just um, – the bumps weren't very fun. But overall, you loved ECW, right? Overall, I loved ECW. When I was working and when, and we were doing things on a pretty regular basis, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Guys with a lot of passion. The fans were a lot of, with a lot of passion. And, and make no mistake about it, I felt for the guys at WrestleMania this year because working in front of no people is tough. Uh, because you do get energy from the crowd, you do get energy from uh, uh, the fans, and and so, but they went out there and did a hell of a job, pulled it off, and ECW was great for people who love the business. You know, Shane Douglas loved the business, and he could be himself out there and, and get get his blow his steam off, and and uh, you know, it's therapeutic for some, obviously. And I had a great great time. You walked in the dressing room. And um, everybody was was doing their thing, was doing what they were doing, and it was uh, a, a, a pleasant environment for me. Maybe not other folks, and, and that's okay. But when I walked in, it was kind of like, uh, you know, you, you swing the doors open of the saloon, and you look around, and you see the card game going over here. You see the dice game going over in the corner, and and you look at the bar, and, and, and you go, okay, let's see here. And you side up to the bar, and, and the fellow looks at you and says, hey, can I buy you a drink? I'm like, sure you can. Where are you from, stranger? And it was kind of like that. You, mm-hmm. just, you walked in, you felt it, I felt at home. And um, uh, if you love the business, I think everybody else who did felt at home too. I think that is a great stopping point and a great little kind of trip down memory lane as far as going to ECW, which I feel like a lot of people may not know that Dr. Tom spent quite a bit of time, not as much as he probably should have, but quite a bit of time in ECW. As far as plugs, please go to ProWrestlingTees.com. You can get a JPWA shirt. You can get a Dr. Tom shirt. I love the Wanted Dead or Alive Dr. Tom shirt. Also, check out Patreon, where a page has been set up. You can become a patron and support the JPWA. Also, go to JPWA's website, jpwrestlingacademy.com. You can follow Dr. Tom on Twitter, at Dr. Tom Pritchard. You can follow me, at Two Man Power Trip. Dr. Tom, you got anything coming up as far as kind of those virtual trainings, anything else going on? Uh, the virtual trainings we've been uh, doing hit and miss, and I, I've only done two for Snake Pit Pro, I believe. But um, we, we try to give it at least a day notice when we're going to go on there. I, honest to goodness, uh, I've been trying to stay busy during this zombie apocalypse, and I, I pretty much forget to tell Sin to plug that I'll be on there the next day, and somebody else has already got that that time slot. And then later on, I just uh, 
I, I, I get to doing what I'm doing and I forget about it. So, uh, but no, just check our Facebook page, our website and uh, Twitter. And uh, we'll, we'll pretty much let everybody know when, when I'm going to be on uh, Facebook or virtual training. And uh, it'll probably be soon. Awesome. So everyone out there, stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, and we will join you next week for Taking You to School with Dr. Tom. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.